Welcome to Port City Politics. I'm WHQR News Director Ben Schachman. And I'm WECT investigative reporter Michael Pratz. And we've got a lot to get to. You may have noticed we took last week off. Um, elections are a bear, so we were tied up with some of that. So this episode, we've got a bunch of stuff to talk about for the city of Wilmington, and then the ongoing saga of Jimmy Hopkins at Cape Fear Community College and Julia Olson Bozeman, chair of the county. So let's get right into it and talk about the city stuff. All right. So where do you want to start with this? Let's start with uh, Charlie Rivenbark. Okay, so this was interesting. I was actually watching city council meeting on uh, Tuesday evening, uh, laying at home like anybody does, right? Just sits around watching city council meeting live streams. Totally normal behavior. Um, so I was watching this, and it actually, uh, it was, it just kind of caught my eye. I, I hopped into this meeting halfway through, uh, and they were approving a rezoning, and this thing did get approved. And I, it, I don't want to say exactly numbers and things like that. It's around 40 acres rezoning in the River Lights area. Yep. But yeah, it's like 250-some apartments. Yeah, so they approve this. But before they approve the rezoning, and it might be like a conditional use or something to that degree, but either way, they want to put more apartments here. So before the vote was taken, uh, Councilman Kevin Spears said – I want to ask something. I received something in my mailbox that said one of the other council members is going to, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, might be uh, involved in the deal somehow, might be making some money off this deal somehow, uh, something to that degree. And at that point, Councilman Charlie Rivenbark uh, started saying, well, what have you heard? What have you heard? And really started pushing back. Kevin Spears was, uh, you know, to his credit, it seemed like he wasn't trying to call somebody out directly at that meeting. And he was like, well, I just heard there's a council member and uh, Rivenbark continued to push him. And he finally said, fine, you know what, Charlie, I heard that you're going to be uh, making some money off of this or, again, paraphrasing. So I think we can just go ahead and play that clip right now. That's what I'm asking. Are you part of the deal? You just act like you didn't know what I was talking about. The answer is no. You're not involved. I mean, how do you want me to say it? I want you to say, no, I'm not involved. No, I'm not involved. Thank you, sir. God. So there you have it for yourself. So I'm not the one saying these things. Um, And so I got curious, again, Tuesday night behavior, uh, started doing some Googling, trying to figure out what exactly Kevin Spears was talking about, because I had never, uh, well, I just really hadn't looked into this specific project. Charlie Rivenbark is a senior vice president for Cape Fear Commercial, and you're going to have to stick with me with different names, different LLCs, and some verbiage gymnastics to explain why some people might be a senior vice president of a company but not really work for the company, which I still am kind of uh, confused about, to be honest with you. Yeah. All right. So let me let's let's break this down. So. The, the way rezonings work is that someone owns the property, but usually a developer comes forward and says, okay, we want to apply for a rezoning because we're going to develop the land on behalf of the property owner. So in this case, the people asking for the rezoning is Cape Fear Development, which is an LLC created by Cape Fear Commercial. Is that correct? Actually, no. Damn it. It is Cape Fear Development Partners LLC, which sounds very similar to Cape Fear Development, 
which is CFD, is Cape Fear Commercial's development wing. And you can go on their website on Cape Fear Commercial and find this whole uh, lineage and pedigree here of who is what and who does what. So wait, let me get this straight. So Cape Fear Development Partners LLC is an LLC created by Cape Fear Development, which is a development company created by Cape Fear Commercial. Yeah, you got that. Okay, um, so I, development inception. Yes, and I can't I can't say who officially created it. I didn't recognize the name. Sometimes you do put attorneys on those uh, Secretary of State registrations. But the interesting thing with this uh, Cape Fear Development Partners LLC is that it came into existence February of this year. The, the individuals listed on the Secretary of State website for it, uh, they do show there are relations to Cape Fear Commercial. Right. And the applicant, Mike Brown, is a realtor, also a senior vice president at yes. Cape Fear Commercial. Yes. Okay. So, so, yeah, I think it's safe to say that they're they're connected in some shape or fashion, at least with some of the same people involved. But again, people create LLCs to insulate and shield themselves. That's what the limited and limited liability means. Mm -hmm. All right. So this was the issue, is that Charlie Rivenbark is a senior vice president at Cape Fear Commercial, which it seems safe to say is involved with the creation with or is associated in some way with Cape Fear Development Partners LLC, which is doing the rezoning. Charlie sits on city council. And so some have suggested, including uh, whoever wrote this letter to Kevin Spears or to city council, that Charlie Rivenbark should recuse himself. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a bit of a tension here because elected officials have a duty to vote unless they have a reason to recuse themselves. But some people construe that recusal as avoiding the appearance of conflict of interest, and some people construe that much more narrowly. Um, so we actually talked to Charlie Rivenbark, mm -hmm. and we asked him a number of questions. He confirmed that these companies are owned by the same people. And so we asked him, you know, you're a senior vice president at this company. Uh, does, does that mean you have any involvement? And here's what he told us. There's about 10 of us that are senior vice presidents. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's not my world, uh, Mr. Rivenbark, so my apologies. But everyone gets to be a senior vice president? You'd have to talk to Brian Eckel about that. And uh, Rivenbark is talking there about uh, Cape Fear commercial founder Brian Eckel. And he wouldn't go any further, but it, it seems a little bit like participation trophies. Basically, uh, anyone who sticks around long enough gets to be a senior vice president at Cape Fear commercial. It's apparently a meaningless term. We also spoke to Brian Eckel, who was one of the founders of Cape Fear Commercial, mm -hmm. and he said uh, Charlie Revenbark has no ownership interest in either Cape Fear Commercial or any of the LLCs that it has spun off. He is an independent contractor, which is what Charlie said. Mm -hmm. So here's sort of what we're looking at in terms of the level of involvement. Charlie is not the broker on this deal, so Correct. he will not directly profit from anything that goes on. He is also not going to take a percentage share, like he, if he was like a legal partner or a brokerage partner, um, as the company in general makes more money. That Everyone seems to agree on that, and that seems to be the logic by which city attorney John Joy, uh, who allegedly proactively reached out to Charlie Rivenbark and asked him about this, that seems to be why the city thinks this deal is kosher. On the other hand, we've talked to people who say, yes, but... Charlie Rivenbark does business under the Cape Fear commercial banner. Mm -hmm. And obviously his ability to get and close deals has to do with the, you know, the faith and the faith in and the reputation of Cape Fear commercial. So getting a project like this secured 
does benefit him in some way because if he was, you know, say a broker for a, you know, a completely unknown company, mm-hmm. um, he might have less clout coming into a deal. He might just have, you know, less ability to say, oh, we absolutely have the resources to handle this redevelopment. So any project that benefits Cape Fear Commercial builds their prestige, helps, you know, b- uh, build their reputation and benefits Charlie. It's not a direct financial benefit, mm-hmm. but it is a benefit. And, and it, it is still his employer by by all, I mean, independent contractor or not, if you're being paid under a contract, that is your employer. Yes. So, And I want to point out that this is not the first time we've had this conversation yeah. about Charlie Reifenbark. He used to work for a different realtor company, uh, Warwick Mouse. and Matthew. they Yes, Warwick Mouse, Matthew. And they were originally the corporate realtor for the Avenue, which, mm-hmm. if you recall, was the uh, multi-million dollar project, uh, somewhat controversial on military cutoff. This mm-hmm. is Roy Carroll's baby. Um, you know, over $100 million of money was going to go into this. This was going to be a huge deal for corporate realtors. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, a couple months before the final vote, uh, the Avenue's website had gone down. It was, you know, quiet for a while. It came back up, I believe, in April. The vote was in June. And when the when the page came back up in April, it listed uh, Warwick, Mouse, and Matthews as the corporate realtor. It said, you know, for questions about, you want to get in? You want to put a storefront in this beautiful new project? Mm-hmm. Hey, call Warwick, uh, Mouse, Matthews. And Charlie did not recuse himself the night of the vote. So it was a complete cluster the next day trying to get to the bottom of this with people saying, oh, it was a mistake with the website and Charlie claiming he never knew about it. I find it difficult to believe I uh, just became candid. I find it dis- difficult to believe that you didn't know that the company you worked for had landed one of the biggest, if not the biggest, corporate realty contract in the city of Wilmington. The only rival really would be Centerpoint. So, but you know, Reifenbrock said he did. He wasn't involved. He didn't know about it. Then he had never heard about it. But he also had told Port City Daily, where you and I both worked at the mm-hmm. time, that he did recuse himself when his employer was involved in a project. And with the Avenue, the the argument was that that was a website error. Mm-hmm. Even though I called Warwick Mouse Matthews the morning after it was approved and they said, yes, they actually gave me the name of the broker. They told me they were very excited the project had been approved. They then later said, oh, no, we, we have nothing to do with it. That's I can't use the word I want to use for what I think that is. But if we take Charlie at his word, he was not involved in that project. Yet he still insisted that when his employer was involved, he would recuse himself. Again, at the point that point, he was saying, mm-hmm. my company was not involved. He later left that company to go to Cave for Commercial. Mm-hmm. But he went on the record and said, when my employer is involved, I recuse myself. So to your point, he is an employee of Cape for Commercial. Cape for Commercial was involved in this, and he didn't recuse himself. Yeah, so I think that's kind of where we can leave this right now. Um, on the technicality side, on the legality side, again, neither you or I are lawyers. Um, however, you, it, it does seem like this could actually pass muster, um, that this is a different LLC spun off from your own company. It doesn't mean that the public's not going to have problems with it. It doesn't mean that the uh, concerns and allegations of um, favoritism or using your political power, which we've seen a lot of concerns about this. We talked to the candidate forum, uh, to State Senator Michael Lee. We have heard it at uh, recent county commission uh, hearings and uh, forums. Uh, the allegations are strong in this town specifically 
that people in political power are using their positions to further their own business interests. So at the end of the day, legal or not, if a lawyer says it is, it's going to take a judge to determine whether or not it was. And I don't think there's anybody bringing that sort of lawsuit. Um, So we have to take the lawyer for his word, whatever that's worth. And but but my point is, legal or not, there's still a lot of uh, appearances, you know, can be even more um, even more important to some people um, than than what the law actually says. So, and, and to that point, I asked Charlie Ravenbark after he, you know, he defended it. He said, "Look, I'm an independent contractor. There's a corporate. He called it a corporate wall between the company mm-hmm. that employs him and the company that's doing this rezoning." Well, that's why they created an LLC. Just, Exa- just to be clear, exactly. So I asked him, "Do you understand why people might feel like there's a conflict of interest here?" And he said, if they do, they can call me like you just did. And so, to be fair, we did call Charlie Ravenbrock about this. He did call us back. So if you're out there and you've got concerns, he seems open to having the conversation. So just to be fair, give him a call. Yeah. All right. Well, that's a good place to leave that one. Let's touch on another story about the city of Wilmington and an ongoing, very frustrating problem. Journalist, not just you, not just I. This isn't just personal uh, gripe session. But it is something that we have seen at least the past two years in the city of Wilmington. You were trying to do a story on what? So this was supposed to be a very simple story. Right after the 4th of July, Mm -hmm. um, a couple of downtown business owners reached out to us. And uh, this year, the 4th of July was on a Monday. Uh, Last year, I believe it was on a Sunday. Sunday. So this wasn't an issue because Sunday, uh, the issue has to do with parking, right? So last year, 4th of July, it was on a Sunday. Parking is free on Sunday. So there was no problem with people, you know, coming downtown during the day instead of going to the beach. Um, this can be a really big, uh, big dollar day for restaurants and shops and stuff like that. This year, it was on a Monday where, you know, usually you have to pay for parking. So parking is free on the 4th of July. It was free on that Monday. But the meters um, don't can be programmed to say, you know, parking is free today. But the city's contractor didn't do that. So if you were a tourist or a resident who just doesn't know, there is a little sign on the meters that say mm-hmm. um, parking is free on Wilmington holidays, but doesn't say which one. Um, so if you just, you know, park your car and, and you look at the meter real quick, it, it tells you, you know, it's X amount of, you know, coins per hour or whatever. It doesn't say free parking. So a lot of people paid. So what we wanted to know was, did a lot of people mistakenly pay or not? Was mm-hmm. this really impacting people who were coming downtown or not? Because that's what the business owners were, were complaining about. Right. So we wanted to see is because if like two people paid a couple bucks, mm-hmm. to me, that's not going to be a big story. So we filed. Uh, we actually asked the city. Can you just tell us how much par- actually first we asked, does the city track parking revenue in any kind of granular way where we could s- get this data? Right. And a city spokesperson said, yes. Well, all right, great. And said, is there any way, you know, we could talk to that person about this? And the city spokesperson said, actually, yeah, we can just get you the data. We can actually just, you know, there's sort of a daily report. It's easy. We can just get it to you. I said, great. Thank you. Uh, Two weeks went by and we were informed by the city's communications office that the city's clerk had intervened, had heard about our request and was going to ask us, was going to require us to file a public records request for the data. But the spokesperson noted that since the city's parking manager, uh, Chance Dunbar, had already done most of the work that, yeah, we had to file a PRR, but it was the technicality. They're going to be able to fill this pretty quickly, they hoped. So the next day, this was on July 26th, the next day we uh, filed our public records request. And then we waited 
months. We waited over two months um, mm-hmm. before the city's clerk's office finally turned over the data, which did show that, you know, people spent thousands of dollars over the last couple of holidays, I believe Memorial Day and July 4th of this year and Memorial Day of last year. Um, there are other days we didn't request, but apparently this has also been an issue on Veterans Day um, of last year. And so it is an issue. Downtown business owners are frustrated. People are paying when they shouldn't. And is this a Pulitzer Prize winning story? No. But it would have been a nice, timely story if we'd been able to report it out, you know, a week later in July. It seems a little bit like beating a dead horse, you know, it's a reheating leftovers or whatever you want to say months and months later. But the reason we did the story is that the only reason it took so long is the clerk's office inexcusable delay because and and you know about this better than anyone else i know about what state law actually says when it comes to how these records requests are supposed to be filled yeah and unfortunately i would say that's true and i i feel like i do know a little bit more about this than many of the people who are tasked with the responsibility of actually fulfilling them um it is beyond frustrating. I still have a records request outstanding. And again, I don't want to make this about us, but unfortunately we do become involved because you and I and any other journalist in this town I have talked to never wants to do a story on, hey, the city isn't providing us with these records. What are they hiding? That's, it's dumb. We don't want to do that story. We, we want to do the story on the content that it is. Uh, as you mentioned with this parking story, it wasn't a Pulitzer-winning story. It was just like, hey, let's check this out. Um, I have a request outstanding since June, late June. It is now mid-October. Um, very, very frustrating. The courts do say that uh, there's no time limit set for state law for public records. However, it does say it has to be done in the most reasonable amount of time, which is uh, you know, expeditious, but, you know, if it takes, if, if you're asking for, you know, all of the records from something very niche that they have to pull a lot of data for, yeah, that might take four weeks, but they're supposed to tell you, they're supposed to kind of work with you. Um, with the city clerk, specifically in Wilmington, it has been uh, really, really difficult to get any information out. I've uh, sent follow-up emails, said, hey, when can I expect this? Uh, those have gone unanswered, and sometimes, other times, uh, she's just told me, hey, I'm still working, uh, still working on this. You can always check in, which I had done before and didn't get a response, but, you know, that is what it is. But the point is, these records are yours. These records are mine. These records are everybody in the city who, anybody in the public, anybody can request these. That's why they're public records. But in my experience, government and not just the city of Wilmington, but that's certainly one of the most difficult to get these records from, um, kind of seem to forget that these are ours and not theirs. And they don't get to pick and choose what we get to see or, you know, untimely delays for this. But it has led to lawsuits in the past, even across the state, across the country. Um, I'm not even, you know, coming close to alleging that this is going to lead to a lawsuit or anything like that. I don't get paid to make those decisions. Um, My opinion is irrelevant on it. It is just, though, extremely frustrating, especially if, you know, you're a general member of the public who might not, obviously doesn't keep as close an eye on things, might want to see something, don't know how the process works. 
and then you get the you know the runaround and you have to wait months and months and months to see something simple that you might just forget about and you know you got to wonder is that what they're hoping for that you forget about this and go away um luckily you and i this is our job and we don't forget about these things we we're keeping tabs on a calendar and we will take those leftovers out of the freezer three months later microwave them and eat them yes um as freezer burned as they may be we still want them um i i just want to say real quick that um we've spoken with uh folks at the duke first amendment clinic mm -hmm. and uh the university of north carolina school of government and that a week maybe two is usually the uh the expected time, that's like a ballpark for reasonable when the requests are not, you know, thousands of documents and they don't require any redactions. Mm -hmm. Email redactions by lawyers take a long time. We understand that. We once did a request with New Hanover County Schools that took almost a year um, because they had to painstakingly redact mm -hmm. years of emails. But they did that for us. It took time. We understood. We were in constant communication about the timeline. Quick fun fact on that. In North Carolina, if you want to do that, I just want everybody to know this. If you, if there are some records that they say are confidential and they're commingled with public information, you can ask them to redact the confidential information and still get that. Uh, I have been unsuccessful in convincing anybody to do it. Uh, however, the government that you're asking for this, they have to pay for that cost. Yes, correct. Um, so long story short, uh, one to two weeks is usually accepted as reasonable by First Amendment lawyers and public records attorneys, um, and this fits that bill. This was a simple request. It was about six pages of, of you know, little charts, um, and they were mostly already prepared by city staff and required no redactions. So two-plus months versus two weeks, there, there's no way a judge would find that reasonable. I'm not suggesting we're going to file suit because we did eventually get them. And just a quick note to say, there seems to be two possible solutions here. One would be additional uh, staff for the clerk's office so that they can uh, obey the law mm -hmm. um, or at least live up to the spirit of the law. Right. Or um, loosen the clerk's uh, iron fist on documents and allow city staff, especially such subject matter experts or department heads, to provide documents to the press uh, when it's reasonable because law does not prevent that. Yeah, and I don't want to go too deep into the weeds here before people uh, start tuning out. But uh, state law does give the city clerk some authority over public records. However, the University of North Carolina School of Government, which is actually who these cities, I know specifically Wilmington, I know New Hanover County, they provide training to these cities and their opinion says yeah, it does delegate some of the authority to the city clerk, but, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, uh, it, it basically says that should not be interpreted, in our opinion, uh, as the city clerk is the sole keeper of all the records. It says the custodian of the records. New Hanover County says the custodian of their records is whoever creates them under state law. Um, for the most part, I've never, ever, ever, ever in North Carolina seen this difficult of a process to go through a city clerk to get everything because to be fair we're not the only ones asking for these records i mean you go to the public terminal you see these records requests there are a lot it would be a lot simpler if you have a request for the fire department to say hey chief can i get the the number of ladder trucks that you have and if you wanted to go to the parks and rec department and say uh you know hey department head could you provide me with the numbers or facts and figures about 
how much money Live Nation brought in and can I see those transcripts and receipts? Um, that would be so much easier just to go and even going through the PIO instead of playing three ways of telephone here. Um, the PIO is the one who is the communications office is tasked with dealing with the media, not the city clerk. It's, it's not her job to deal with us. Um, so by making us go through this, it puts more workload on the city clerk herself, which I don't want for her. Um, it, it can't be easy dealing with you and I, um, and we admit that. Uh, but, you know, we would like to see some sort of uh, simplification of the process. And like you said, just a, a little more staying within the spirit of the law here. Yeah, and I think that's a fair place to leave it. Yeah, I think so. All right, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about Julia Olson-Bozeman and Jimmy Hopkins. All right. Welcome back to Port City Politics. I'm WHQR News Director Ben Schachman. And I'm WECT investigative reporter Michael Pratt. And we realized we ran a little long uh, venting about public records, but they are yours. It is important, so we took the time to do that. Uh, we want to have two kind of quick updates because these are forthcoming stories that aren't out yet mm -hmm. as we're recording this Thursday morning, but we do want to touch on them. Yeah, so first we'll go ahead and talk about... Uh, Julia Olson Bozeman, let's just get this one out of the way. We have covered this story, uh, these stories, for the past 18, 19, going on two years now, uh, 20 months, something like that. And this has to do with a lot of different issues that Chairwoman Julia Olson Bozeman has faced, uh, which really kicked off with the allegations that she had taken $20,000 from a client. The state bar got involved because she was an attorney. Uh, they're investigating, the SBI is investigating, we found stuff about the Board of Elections, we don't need to go into all of that. Most recently, we uh, learned some information that when she was in Italy over the summer, um, we heard from her wife, who told us that, uh, you know, she had taken money from her account, that she had ran up credit cards, that sort of thing, sort of turned into a, a pretty ugly uh, marital personal issue, which we want to be clear, we, we typically don't report on. And if we do, as in this situation, because some of these things have to do, um, you know, with, with some of the other things we have reported that have been much more public. Um, so we reported about the, that she had transferred $118,000 from a joint bank account that she shared with her wife to her own personal account, all sorts of these issues. It ended up in family court where, again, we don't want to be um, but we finally have some more information. So tell me what we what we have seen and what we're going to uh, what these stories are likely going to hold. Yeah, and we'll again we will be reporting this out uh, with more detail and nuance. But I just want to give you the highlights. Again, this was hours and hours of testimony from mm -hmm. two separate cases involving Miss Olson Bozeman and her ex-wife and her current wife with whom she is separated. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of very personal stuff um, in these court hearings that we have no intention of ever talking about. Yep. Um, we did speak with Olson Bozeman. She was um, perhaps understandably frustrated that we were looking at her personal life. Uh, and again, just to be clear, we are looking for stuff that represents malfeasance in her role as an elected official or that reflects on other questions we have about her professional or elected role. We, we do not want to get into her personal life. And so we're not going to touch any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, 
But there were a couple of highlights or lowlights, depending on how you look at it, a couple of key takeaways. One was there are questions about her personal finances Mm -hmm. that have come up in this separation case. Um, She apparently received a payment as an attorney for a personal injury case. That's all we know about it. Mm -hmm. They actually redacted the name of the case during the court hearing. And her, you know, her her fee as an attorney was six hundred and sixty six thousand six hundred and sixty six dollars and sixty six cents, which several of my friends who are attorneys suggested this could that does sound like a a curious number, but that could simply just be a one third one third payout of a uh, of a two million dollar payment or something like that. So that's why you're seeing that number. Um, but in any case, it is that money is now gone, mm-hmm. um, according to sworn testimony by everyone involved. And so the judge has issued a uh, an order um, to account for all that money. I have heard through channels that that process is underway, that Julia Olson Bozeman is cooperating with that. And this is all part of the larger question about where her personal funds have gone, where money she took uh, from clients and put in an escrow fund have, have gone. Um, so we're not saying she has done anything wrong. We're just saying that yet again, a judge or an official has said, we, we need an accounting of your finances. Yeah. So that's one part of it. The The next part of it is that, um, and again, I, I'd be the, one of the last people in the, in the world to you know do some reporting demonizing marijuana. Right. But she has admitted to using drugs and alcohol daily from the beginning of this calendar year through the end of July. Um, it is not a secret that Olson Bozeman has had trouble with alcohol and drugs in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, she has been to rehab. In fact, that's famously the reason she was so committed to building the healing place. Put a pin in that. Mm-hmm. More on that in a second. Uh, here in New Hanover County. And again, uh, she did testify in court that she was using drugs and alcohol only at night, not d- during the day, not during her, uh, not while she was doing her job and not around her children. And her and her attorney were clear that it was only marijuana and alcohol, not anything more serious, nar- you know, illicit narcotics like heroin or cocaine. But as someone who has blamed past mistakes on drugs and alcohol and who is still the sitting chair of the county, mm-hmm. who is still in charge of a half billion dollar budget and the welfare of a quarter million people, the fact that she had relapsed for over six months. Right. And had not talked about it, and no one around her uh, in her professional life and her, you know, county life had talked about it. is is troubling to us, and we have reached out to the county commissioners, and as of Thursday morning, uh, not heard anything. The last part, and I'll let you take this, is um, she under oath? I, I believe it's probably part of her child custody arrangements mm-hmm. that she have some employment. Again, don't want to get too much right. into that. Um, but she was asked what her current employee is, and she said she's the chair of the county. She does receive uh, a stipend for that. Mm-hmm. was increased recently. Yes. But uh, that will end um, in mid-December, I believe. Yeah. And so she said that she was now looking for employment at the healing place. Yeah, and that's where probably one of my biggest concerns comes in because uh, you and I have talked about it. I know a lot of people, as we mentioned earlier, have issues with people's personal politicians, personal business coinciding with uh, with their role as a politician. We do not have professional politicians in North Carolina. We have no problems, and I, I hope nobody has any problem with people making money and, you know, being able to keep a roof over their head. Um, you need a job. You, you need a job. And so when she said she applied for a job at the Healing Place, on one hand, fine, it makes sense. You know, you're, you're in recovery. You're um, you know, trying to stay stay sober, um, it makes sense. But on the the thing that brings us pause 
is the fact that, A, she was a driving force behind bringing the healing place here. B, we have the issues with, uh, well, I don't have issues with, but we have the concerns from the community about the, what did, uh, what did Commissioner Barfield call it? The pimping and... Yeah, there's the, the long backstory, which we'll link to here, about um, effectively a local nonprofit, Coastal Horizons, was supposed to be the operator of the Healing Place. Uh, they were actually brought forward to testify in front of the city of Wilmington. Because mm-hmm. this facility will be in Wilmington, they needed a rezoning and a special use permit. Um, Coastal Horizons assuaged a lot of concerns of stakeholders, including neighboring businesses mm-hmm. in that healthcare park area. And after they received those permits, they then cut Host Horizons out of the deal and brought in the Healing Place of Kentucky. Uh, Trillium claims this was always the plan, although their, I believe it was their vice president, um, appears to have lied to city council by saying that was not the plan. So that, that whole situation was very concerning. Yeah. So there's those issues. And again, that was Trillium's ultimate decision, not the county commissioners, although they did have to approve it. Um, had they not, they wouldn't have gotten the property. But again, you can read all about that. Uh, the other issue is this was a roughly $24 million capital project that the county took out, I believe, bonds for to fund this. And they're also going to be doing in perpetuity, I believe, uh, 50 beds for females and 50 beds for males uh, in terms of funding for this. So if you or I were going to be giving another company I wish I had millions of dollars to give someone. Uh, But if we were going to be giving them, you know, 100 beds for their facility every month and you were the CEO or the chairperson and you came to them and said, hey, I I would like a job when I get done with my role as county commissioner, um, it, it would probably be difficult to turn someone down who is in control of your funding still, you know, regardless of uh, whether or not she's leaving the board, there's still a month left. Um, things can happen. So that's where the concern is. Is there a conflict of interest? Again, we have no problem with someone trying to make a living, no problem with someone you know, in recovery going into a job that makes sense. But the appearance of conflict of interest, and I, I think we can actually say it, it, it is a conflict. Yeah. Uh, here's what I'll say about this is that in her response to us, and again, understandably frustrated that we are talking about her personal life, mm-hmm. we understand that, but she is also still an elected official. Mm-hmm. And we do not know what happened exactly in her interview with the Healing Place because the Healing Place did not respond to our questions. Mm-hmm. But in her sworn testimony, Olson Bozeman said that she applied for the facilities director's job, for which she is not qualified. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I could say that just on the face of it. She is an attorney and a county chairwoman, but has no experience running a 200-bed facility uh, for rehab. So they understandably told Julie Olson Bozeman that you are not qualified. But According to her testimony, they told her, but we will find you a job somewhere, which Mm -hmm. sounds like preferential treatment to me. That's my opinion. I feel like if I applied for a facilities director's job, they'd be like, no, you're a journalist with a lit degree. Why are you trying to get this job? Right. Um, But we will find you a job. That just it's it is hard to separate that testimony from the fact that she was instrumental in getting this facility greenlit. So I I think if, if that doesn't look like a conflict of interest to you, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. So I think that's a great place to leave it. Again, those stories will be coming out in more detail. You can read all about them. We'll link to them on this page. Yeah. And just really quickly, because I know that we have run quite long, um, the issue of Jimmy Hopkins, as you saw, er, uh, we had scheduled uh, actually you and Rachel Keith mm-hmm. 
had scheduled an interview with Hopkins this morning, right now, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has pushed that to tomorrow morning. We're still expecting that interview. But unexpectedly, um, just to briefly catch you up, Hopkins, a long time, over uh, 10 years, board mm-hmm. of trustee member at Cape Fear Community College, uh, had a disagreement with President Jim Morton about lack of transparency around the Bank of America building purchase, which mm-hmm. went down a couple weeks ago. Um, Hopkins chairs the facilities committee and yet knew nothing about this. And he was removed uh, summarily by County Chairwoman Julia Olson Bozeman. Hopkins initially lawyered up, got one of the, I think it's based to say, one of the best attorneys in town who seems to have come out of retirement to threaten to sue the county, which is no small feat because the county has near inexhaustible uh, attorney resources. Yeah, yeah. Pulled and, a uh, Tom Brady here. Yeah, and um, initially came out pretty strong, said he felt that Olson Bozeman's termination of him or dismissal of him was completely illegitimate and that he would be going to the November CFCC board meeting as a trustee mm-hmm. and would take legal action if anyone stood in his way. But apparently last weekend he had a change of heart and on Sunday sent a letter to Bill Cherry, uh, who's the chair of the CFCC Board of Trustees, saying um, sort of the typical in the interest of, uh, you know, everything being good at CFCC, I am not going to push this and I'm going to resign. He did say, this is still bogus. My mm-hmm. dismissal was bogus and I am resigning as an active uh, Board of Trustees members. He kind of left it dangling a little bit at the end, saying that there were issues at the college that deeply concerned him, mm-hmm. but that, you know, light would triumph over darkness, kind of some... Definitely alluding to something. We don't know what. Hopefully that comes out in your interview with him tomorrow. Yeah, hopefully. And I will say the uh, the county has put out another call for applicants. Um, I, I didn't see yesterday whether or not this position's on it. It will be interesting to see if one of the last moves that Commissioner Olson Bozeman gets to make as county chairwoman is to appoint someone to this position or if uh, fellow commissioners will wait to fill that spot. We'll have to wait and see. And hopefully we get some more clarification from Jimmy Hopkins tomorrow. Right. So I know we had a very lengthy rundown, so we will have links to a lot of the stuff we talked about on the page. And you can stay tuned for reporting on Julia Osen bozeman from Pratt's and I uh, later today, hopefully. And uh, we will have more on Jimmy Hopkins after you guys track him down and talk to him. All right. Well, we will see you next week. We will see you next week.